Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Uh, today, I'm going to uh, do something a little bit ambitious. I'm going to try and deal with the 20th century. And uh, um, it is ambitious because I'm not entirely sure how this is going to, uh, this is whether, how coherent we can make this, but I'm going to try and uh, pick out what I feel and what uh, maybe other scholars feel are the major themes of uh, 20th century Jewish philosophy. And in order to do that, we just have to talk for a minute about the 20th century itself. Uh, some of us might even remember the 20th century. It, uh, it wasn't too long ago. Uh, and it was, as you know, dominated uh, from a Jewish history perspective by two overwhelming events, uh, one of which was the Shoah, the Holocaust that happened in the middle of the century, followed almost immediately um, in relative terms by the establishment of the State of Israel. And these two events are inescapable in terms of an influence on all aspects of Jewish thought and culture. And really, uh, when we look at those two events, uh, the Holocaust and the State of Israel, we look at them both in the lead up to them and in the response to them, uh, is a way in, uh, in which we can access what has happened in 20th century Jewish philosophy. As I always said, as I said at the very first talk, and we always reiterate that in many ways, Jewish philosophy is a reactive exercise, that it is responding to challenges that come from outside. And because philosophy deals with what we can know about the world through the human mind, uh, then uh, for the most part, those challenges come from other intellectual ideas and how Judaism responds to them. That's Jewish philosophy. But in the 20th century, the events are so existentially overwhelming that the challenges come from a great variety of places. And uh, here we can just bear in mind the distinction between what, what we might call Jewish philosophy and what we might call Jewish thought. So I'm focusing more on figures that are recognized within philosophy generally. But in order to do that, let me uh, show you uh, roughly what I'm going to talk about today. I'll just show you the timeline uh, of what I want to uh, speak about today. Uh, here's the 20th century and uh, uh, I'm, go I'm going to come back to this particular diagram uh, in a few minutes, but I'm going to focus mostly on, uh, on Levinas, Soloveitchik and Sachs, really uh, as belonging to the second half of the century, but we're going to need to talk about uh, the lead up to it as well. Uh, because uh, I want to just, in the first part of the century, I just want to deal with those issues a little bit separately. And I want to talk first about the about the rise of uh, the Zionist struggle, uh, which was uh, in many ways consuming much of the Jewish world. And uh, we don't really see the Zionist project, the idea of uh, restoring a Jewish homeland to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. We don't see that really producing uh, many philosophical products until the second half of the 20th century, but there is something definitively to be noted about that, and that is that probably 
if you were to come back in 500 years' time and look at that period and see who was the dominant thinker in terms of influence of that period, uh, you would almost certainly go with a figure like Ruff Cook. Uh, and the reason I talk about Ruff Cook is that although Ruff Cook is not really is not really considered a, a philosopher per se, because he's not working in the milieu uh, classically of, uh, of philosophical discourse, but <laughs> Ralph Cook uh, read philosophy and he'd read uh, just about everything right up to his own time, which meant right up to Nietzsche. As I uh, pointed out uh, on a previous uh, talk, uh, really the 19th century belonged to German philosophy and its tremendous adventure uh, following Kant's into transcendental idealism. And you had Kant, you had Hegel. We talked about Hegel's idea of, of historical consciousness and the spirit evolving in history. And then Fichte, Schelling, Schopenhauer, and then the whole thing got exploded in Nietzsche. Ruff Cook had read Nietzsche, he'd read everybody, but for Ruff Cook, uh, there was really only one thing going on. Remember, we spoke last week about what's really going on, and for Buber, it was revelation. Uh, there's only one thing going on for Ruff Cook, and that is redemption. All of those philosophical discussions are really mute now. We are in a framework of time where uh, the redemptive idea in Judaism is being revealed on the historical stage, and that is the project that everyone uh, needs to engage in. Of course, Ruff Cook's tremendous uh, insight into the fact that the collective of the Jewish people is responsible for uh, that redemptive and religious exercise of establishing uh, a state and, uh, in the land of Israel. And for that purpose, he incorporated uh, religious and secular. Everybody was involved in that project. And Rav Cook was famous for finding uh, sparks of holiness in everything in the world, even in other religions and faith systems. Uh, but Rav Cook's great student, the uh, Rabbi Davida Kohen, known as the Nazir, because he was a Nazarite for much of his life, is uh, a philosophical figure. And I just want to touch on him very briefly, uh, because uh, David Kohen was a philosophy student with a lot of questions during uh, right up until, say, the time of the First World War. And he went to Switzerland to meet Rav Cook had a lot of questions, and, but it was just because he was in the room next to him in the hotel, heard Ruff Cook uh, saying the Shema in the morning, and that was enough to change uh, David Cohen's life towards uh, becoming completely um, enamored with his teacher and an expounder of Ruff Cook's ideas on a philosophical stage. Uh, the Nazirs, and, and, and I'm only headlining this. I'm not expecting that people will understand exactly where I'm going, but I'm just opening the doors uh, for further research for you. But uh, the Nazir's basic idea is that, and we can see this earlier if we think about the Kuzari and other thinkers earlier within whose tradition Rav Cook sits, but the Nazir's idea, Rabbi David Cohen's idea, is that Judaism has its own unique spiritual logic that doesn't follow the logic of Greek philosophy and, and, and subsequent to it, which uh, the Nazir says is really a visual logic, whereas uh, the unique spirituality of the Jewish people is really emergent from an audio logic about what we've heard, not what we can see. There's a totally different way of knowing things. And of course, 
that the ultimate spiritual logic of the Jewish people is embodied in the concept of nevuah, the concept of prophecy. And so in his famous work, Kol HaNevuah, The Voice of Prophecy, the Nazir is calling for a, and predicting a return of uh, the prophetic dimension to the Jewish people now that we are coming into a revealed redemptive state. There is no question that for Rav Kook and for the Nazir, the establishment, the Zionist struggle, the establishment of the state of Israel was God's supernatural redemptive intervention into history and a restoration of the authentic original spirituality of the Jewish people and that we will see the return of Nevoah of prophecy. So really, if anything was to come out of that whole project, it's that philosophy itself will be overtaken by the full revelation of God in history. And uh, Rav Kook was completely convinced of that. The Nazir was convinced of that. The Nazir lived until the 1970s. He saw the establishment of the State of Israel. And that idea has never left uh, the adherence of Rav Kook. But uh, we have to deal with this very, very big shadow that sits on the 20th century. And uh, we have to realize that the entire German project of idealism and philosophy, as impressive as it was, ultimately failed. It failed because after a, more than a century of impressive intellectual achievements, uh, German culture and German society uh, then perpetrated uh, the greatest uh, crime against humanity that history has recorded. And if anything, that is going to show a tremendous failure of any ethical system that might have arisen out of that discourse on being, which is a failure. And let, and let, me, let me get a little bit more specific about that, because some of you would be aware that uh, we talked about Herman Cohen last week. We talked about the whole of the neo-Kantian enterprise that uh, continued uh, throughout the 19th century and then started to combine with some of the existential insights that we spoke about last week through Kierkegaard and so on. Uh, by the time we get to the early 20th century, the dominant philosopher really in, in German society is in fact Jewish. It's Edmund Husserl. Husserl is not recognized so much as a Jewish philosopher, but more of a philosopher who was Jewish by birth. And Husserl uh, really is uh, the father of, a, of an entirely new philosophical movement called phenomenology. Big word. No reason to be scared of it. Phenomenology looks at states of being. Uh, in other words, it's taking the neo-Kantian ideas about how do human beings, in a sense, from within themselves, create reality. Uh, and combined with the existential aspect of what it is to be a human being in the world, phenomenology starts to look at states of consciousness and states of being and how they construct reality. And Husserl has a student, and his student is Martin Heidegger. And in the 1920s, Heidegger produces this 
massive magnum opus called Being and Time, Sein und Zeit, which is the, an overwhelmingly impressive and influential textbook in uh, 20th century philosophy. Make no mistake. I mean, it's very difficult to move anywhere without making some reference to Heidegger's insights. An incredible, uh, we, I mean, this is not a talk on Heidegger, and I'm not going to go into Heideggerian thought right now, but it, it, it's an incredible exploration of the concept of being in relation to uh, particularly time as the, uh, as, as, as the kind of like the guiding uh, parameter by which we can understand different states of, of the human being. The problem is, is that, um, and in fact, in his first edition of Being in Time, Heidegger dedicated it to his teacher. But by the time you get to 1933, uh, and the, uh, the Nazis already in power, and Husserl obviously has had to leave his position, as all Jews in tenured academic positions had to leave, doesn't matter how big a philosopher or influential you were, when the Nazis came to power, if you were Jewish, you were out. Heidegger reprinted Being in Time without the dedication to his teacher, but really the first thing that Heidegger did when he became the new head of philosophy at Freiburg, uh, in his initial inaugural speech, he got up and he told the students that the best thing that you can do for yourself actually is to join the Nazi party. And throughout the 1930s and even into the 1940s, Heidegger uh, was in communication with Hitler and he was saying things like, uh, whereas you, Hitler, are the political Fuhrer of the German people, I am its shepherd, I am its kind of intellectual and spiritual guide. Heidegger was a Nazi. He became a Nazi. And even though... Uh, he was still regarded as a major force in philosophy after the Holocaust. He never really uh, came to terms with that and never really apologized for it. It's not, it's not that Heidegger was, you know, uh, pushing buttons at Auschwitz himself, but he was regarded as the leading intellectual philosophical figure of Nazi Germany. And uh, as uh, others have said, uh, well, one young man who came from Lithuania uh, to uh, Germany to study with Husserl and Freiburg uh, is a very important person we're going to look at for a few minutes as a response to the Shoah. Because at the end of the day, doesn't matter how clever you are, Jewish philosophy has to respond to an event like the Shoah. How, how do we even begin to incorporate such a thing? And uh, the first person I want to look at in that regard uh, is possibly the deepest thinker uh, in Jewish thought after the Holocaust, and that would be Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas is regarded as a world philosopher, but he had a lot to say about Jewish thought as well. And uh, Levinas uh, was born in Lithuania, but he came to Germany as a young man to study with Husserl and Heidegger, and uh, very, very impressed with Heidegger. But you can imagine... You can imagine that when Heidegger announced himself as a Nazi, uh, that this, and subsequently Levinas himself, who became a French citizen of the late 1930s uh, and fought for the French army and spent most of World War II as a prisoner of war, was not impressed. 
was not impressed with Heidegger. Uh, in fact, he said it's possible to forgive uh, many Germans a great many things, but it's very, very difficult to forgive Heidegger. Heidegger disillusioned an entire generation of people, especially uh, his Jewish students. Levinas, in his famous book, Totality and Infinity, that he wrote after the war, is trying to work out what it was that Heidegger had left out of his very, very comprehensive discussion of being. And in doing so, Levinas is trying to ground philosophy itself, create what he called a first philosophy that underpins any other intellectual consideration in philosophy and that grounding for Levinas is ethics. And an ethics particularly that emerges from relationship with other. That is the thing that is missing from Heidegger's very impressive discussion of being, is the concept of other. And the meaning of existence in terms of the ethical transcendence of the other. The other for Levinas, and we'd already looked at this concept of the other last week when we talked about Buber and the dialogic relationship of revelation that happens with the other. What Levinas's great insight is that the other is fundamentally irreducible. The other is a self whose otherness is infinite. It's beyond the ability to reduce any individual to an object. It is beyond totality. The other is beyond any totalizing systems. You can never ever truly know the other itself because the other is essentially an irreducible infinity and really, in a sense, the other our encounter with the other, who is an irreducible self, is an encounter with God. The other is the face of God in many ways. What this connects with is the Levinas's whole idea of building this existential first philosophy on a very, very foundational existential experience of what it is to encounter another human being face-to-face. -face. The face-to-face -face encounter becomes the paradigm for Levinas to build an entire ethical system. And he talks, I mean, right about the idea of fundamental hospitality. This is a, an amazing phenomenology of hospitality, as Derrida later called it where he takes the very, very simple idea of hospitality, the idea of the face-to-face -face encounter with all of its primary qualities and builds an existential system based on that. And out of that comes Levinas's concept of responsibility. It's not just that I am respecting the other. It's not just that I am not killing the other or not reducing the other to object but I actually also have a responsibility towards other. Even the victim, even the victim 
has a responsibility. This is a, a fascinating echo, actually. I mean, uh, uh, in thinking about all these thinkers, I can see how they can, we can see how they can reflect all of each other. Interesting idea about the victim having responsibility to the other. It kind of echoes uh, a very famous statement of Rav Cook about um, the difference, you know, like in terms of victimhood and, and, uh, and other states of mind, whereas instead of, you know, complaining about how dark it is, Create light is the ultimate paradigm of the righteous person. So Levinas talks about uh, a responsibility for the other, and he talks about how uh, if we un can understand the irreducibility of the other, then the awful evils of totalitarianism that we saw dominating much of the 20th century uh, would, not, uh, would not emerge. There is a there is a little bit like Crescas, there is a philosophy should not be about the love of knowledge, really, but about the knowledge of love. And anything that's not emergent from this uh, contemplation upon relationship with other is, is not uh, within the philosophical discourse of humanity that's going to lead anywhere productive. Um, uh, Levinas himself of, uh, even writes that his, his work is completely... Uh, overwhelmingly influenced by Rosenzweig and others uh, who we have discussed, but uh, don't underestimate the importance of, of, of Levinas in, in, in later 20th century thought. But I'm going to move on because I could talk about Levinas a lot and I'm kind of holding myself back because I want to talk about some other people. Another response to the Shoah, and there are a number of responses to Shoah we don't have time to talk about. Are we... We're going to talk about um, Emil Fackenheim and, uh, and Avram Yeshua Heschel, also very important thinkers in the uh, later part of the 20th century, or the second half of the 20th century. But I want to focus on someone who, uh, who is extremely influential within their own milieu, and that is Rabbi Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, often seen as the uh, leading figure of what, has come to be known in the 20th century by that awful name, modern orthodoxy. Uh, Soloveitchik, uh, interestingly enough, although he comes from one of the great rabbinic families of, of, uh, of Europe, nevertheless studied philosophy as a young man, went to Berlin. He was in Berlin at the same time that they were all in Berlin, you know, him and Nechama Leibovitz and the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Anyone who, who is doing anything interesting is hanging around in Berlin, and Soloveitchik was as well. And he wrote a PhD on, on Hermann Cohen. And if you recall our discussion on Hermann Cohen from last week, the whole idea of correlationism, being and becoming the great neo-Kantian interpretation of Judaism and relationship with God, that so inflamed Rosenzweig and so on, I want to focus on Soloveitchik because it's extremely, uh, it, 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 it's extremely influential, in, in, particularly in Jewish religious philosophy going forward in the late 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, but the essence of Soloveitchik's idea, uh, take, and you'll see how Cohen's influence is in this, is that Soloveitchik points to this interesting discrepancy, apparently, in in the Torah, where in the book of Genesis, 
there are, in fact, the account of the creation of Adam happens twice. There are kind of two Adams created. I mean, it's the one Adam, but it's related differently. The different ways in which Adam is created and the different charge he's given. Soloveitchik focuses upon this and talks about two different types of human beings. Two different types of Adam. The first he calls the majestic Adam. The Adam of uh, science. The Adam of the world. The universal Adam. Who is given the creative task of dominating the world and possessing it and utilizing it. Uh, and this is, this, 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 is, this is humanity in its kind of most glorious Star Trek form. It is evolved, it is technological, it is scientific, it is open. And the second is what Soloveitchik refers to as a covenantal man. That is the human being that enters into a relationship of faith with God as a result of the existential loneliness that human beings ultimately feel and that level of unfulfillment that they have uh, in a state which does not um, I mean, I mean Kierkegaard talked about a leap of faith but Soloveitchik's idea is, 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 is more to do with uh, a necessity upon the, the existential loneliness of, of the individual vis-a-vis -vis the pressure to be the majestic human being and causes human beings to enter into a framework of faith and a covenantal relationship with God. Those of those of you who are into the thought of Soloveitchik will probably not like the way I'm expressing it, but what we can see is this in Soloveitchik, this kind of unique synthesis of, you know, Neo-Kantianism and existentialism and Torah and orthodoxy and so on. The key point emerging from Soloveitchik is that the halachic individual, the individual that observes halacha as a living way, as an existential process, allows eternity, which is resonant in the collective, the eternal collective of the Jewish people and the Torah, to emerge into being. And the observance of halacha is like an apparatus that allows that eternal dimension uh, to be expressed in the world creatively. So as the individual observes halakha, they are, in a sense, creating themselves. They're creating their own humanity. That places Soloveitchik in a unique position to be able to talk about the relationship between uh, these two epistemic realities of, of science and halakha and so on. Um, but Soloveitchik also responds to the Holocaust and in an interesting way, and, and, and not, not, not in a way that's easy to access, but uh, opens the door for a conversation because uh, Levinas had said that the Holocaust was the end 
of any attempts to explain evil, the end of all theodicies. Soloveitchik says something similar, but he puts it in theological terms when he talks about this concept of hester panim. That is that there are times in history where God, in a sense, abandons his direct supervision of the world and hides his face from the revealed covenant relationship with the Jewish people. We don't know why that happens, but we can recognize the pattern, the divine pattern that happens in that. And in some ways, that's fascinating because Levinas has talked about how the face-to-face encounter is the basis of any ethical system. And Soloveitchik, after the Holocaust, is talking about the concept of God's face being concealed, meaning that, in a way, humanity had become theologically objectified uh, in relation to God. And it's a very, very, very difficult thing to try and analyze. We don't, we cannot explain the Holocaust and philosophy failed uh, to explain the Holocaust. And Soloveitchik ascribes that to some kind of overarching theological framework. In, in, in connection with that, I, 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 I want to touch on someone, very few people have tried to marry the two main streams of 20th century thought about, uh, or projects of 20th century Jewish life about the state of Israel and the Holocaust, except maybe for a very contentious figure like Yeshaya Leibovitz. So Leibovitz would argue, for example, that um, it's irrelevant to give any kind of contemplation to the Holocaust. Judaism is about faith. Uh, actually, before I talk about, actually, you know, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a picture I want to show you. Sorry, I'm a bit, um, a bit all over here because thoughts are, thoughts are lining up in my, um, in my mind to be shared. So I just want to show you what what is happening with Soloveitchik because I, I don't think I explained that well enough. These two atoms, uh, they both, they both connect with faith, but Adam one, who is the majestic and whose primary project is creative. Whereas covenantal man, his energies are expressed in community. And it is the pressure to reconcile these two concepts of Adam that creates the interesting space inside Soloveitchik's perception of the world. But Leibovitz's idea of faith is not a creative one. Leibovitz's idea of faith is that faith is a commitment. It's a commitment to obey the demand of God. That conversation with God is only ever a one-way conversation. It is absolutely useless to try and say anything about God. Anyone who says anything about God is really saying something about themselves. There's nothing we can say about God. And Leibovitz famously said uh, to someone who said that they lost their faith in God after the Holocaust, and uh, Leibovitz famously said to them, well, 
that shows that you never actually believed in God. Because faith has got nothing to do with your rationalization of what God should and should not be doing. If you're born into the factuality of an existence where there is a God who demands from you to keep halakha, that's what you do. Leibovitz was very, very insistent on the separation of, of state and religion. He was extremely liberal on a range of political issues. But in terms of his religious philosophy, there's no discussion about why we keep mitzvot. There's no discussion about why we express our Jewishness in religious terms. That's just a commitment that we make because God demands it of us. You can run away and ignore that commitment, but if you're born into the Jewish people, that's the call that's upon you. You don't do it, you don't do it. But if you do it, you do it, and you don't talk about why you do it. That's just what you're doing. Very, it's not, it's not for everybody, Leibovitz's philosophy, but it has a certain logic to it. Uh, but, I, but, but I want to, having I felt inadequately discussed uh, Soloveitchik, because I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to come back to him in a second, because I want to talk in the remaining minutes, I want to talk about the other figure that I think is going to be considered for a long time as, as, as a big influence in the late 20th and 21st century, and that is, uh, and someone who's still alive, and that, of course, is Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs's thought and, uh, and writings and insights are extensive across a, a, a vast range of, of concerns. But I want to try and uh, perhaps uh, whittle it down to what the, his, his essential contribution is. And the more I look at Sachs, the more, the more it seems to me that Sachs is really uh, taking from quite a number of different earlier philosophers. He doesn't always say that, but uh, for example, Sachs has got... Jonathan Sachs is, 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 in many ways, is not a terribly original thinker. He is a, uh, he's a thinker who has a phenomenally excellent way of expressing ideas. There's no question that he is a marvellous, marvellous articulator of thought. And perhaps uh, there's no better articulator of thought in the Jewish world at the moment. And he does have some original insights. Uh, Sachs is trying to build uh, as, uh, not just an ethics for the individual, but a social ethics for the world. And Sachs has this idea of, famously, of Torah and Chokhmah, that Chokhmah is, is the kind of like the, um, the aspiration to uh, science and knowledge generally of humanity, and Torah is the and, and universalism, and Torah is the particular discourse of, of, of faith, and particularly the faith of the Jewish people. I'm not sure I can see the difference in Jonathan Sachs's notion of Torah and Chokhmah and Soloveitchik's idea of the first and second Adam. They seem extremely similar to me. But the, the book that I, uh, and Jonathan Sachs has written many, many books. Uh, the one that I want to focus on, which is the one I've been focusing on for a while, whenever I think about Jonathan Sachs, because I can't, uh, I can't get beyond that in a way. And that is the, one of his earlier books, which you'd be familiar with, which is uh, the book from the early 2000s called The Dignity of Difference, which I think really 
stab Jonathan Sachs as a phenomenally original thinker within the framework of Jewish philosophy. Because in The Dignity of Difference, and remember that The Dignity of Difference, whose subtitle, whose impressive subtitle is How to Avoid the Clash of Civilizations, was a very contentious book that was basically banned by the ultra-Orthodox community because primarily because of a line that Sachs has in that book where he says, on earth there are many, in heaven there is one truth, on earth there are many truths. And that wasn't an acceptable statement for the Manchester Bethdean and other ultra-Orthodox organizations. How could you say that on earth there are many truths that gives validity to other spiritual systems, validity to other religions? Sachs had to change that line Quite an incredible episode. But in the course of that discussion, what Sachs demonstrates is that difference in the world has a purpose. That purpose, the purpose of difference between different peoples, not just as individuals, but as collectives, with their own ideas about the world, their own ideas about God, their own cultures, their own ways of looking at things has a purpose and it is a tremendous purpose because it is the purpose of allowing human beings to express this idea of dignity for the other building on Levinas and other thinkers of the 20th century talked about the concept of otherness it's difference that allows us to express that level of dignity and that level of respect that we can have for the other. You can't have respect for the other if everyone is the same. This is an inversion, amazingly, going right back to the beginning of this series. That is an inversion of Plato. Because Plato will argue that the ideal realm is up there, but the reason difference exists here is because of plurality and corruption. And that starts the whole journey in post-Platonic philosophy about how we get from the ideal one to this corrupt plurality down here, whereas Sachs is telling you that actually the plurality and corruption down here is the very point because that is the place where dignity of the difference of other can be expressed and can be emerged. And in that dignity and in that expression is an understanding of the transcendence of the divine. And in the course of that, Sachs talks about the elucidation of faith. And faith for Sachs is the foundation of what is going to build a system of social ethics for the world. Unlike Leibovitz, who tells you that faith is just a personal commitment to be religious. That's Leibovitz's idea. But for Sachs, faith is a far deeper and more complex and active arrangement. In fact, as Sachs tells you, that Jews are not optimists. Optimists, there's no way you can read Jewish history and come out as an optimist. But the Jewish people are hopers. The Jewish people brought the idea of a belief in a better world, of a redeemed world. 
they brought this to humanity. In fact, tomorrow is the 17th of Tammuz, and we once again begin the cycle of the three weeks. And really, the three weeks of the morning of the destruction of the temple is really part of the engine of what the Jewish people are striving and yearning towards, a better and redeemed world. That is the active faith of the Jewish people that contribute, can contribute uh, to the building of a better world between all faith communities and between uh, all individuals. It's a very, very deep message. Uh, it has, of course, echoes from uh, a whole range of philosophers that we've looked at. Some of it is not always entirely original, but as I said, uh, sex has a very, very unique way of articulating all this. So uh, I want to just finish off by showing how in the 20th century, really, we can kind of uh, order those different philosophers uh, because they have different emphases. W one emphasis is on the, in a sense, trying to comprehend the idea of the transcendent, the idea of a relationship with God, a covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people and the world and the Torah and so on. And in that, in that category, we could even put someone like uh, Herman Cohen, we could put Rosenzweig, uh, we could put Soloveitchik, who see within uh, the performance of mitzvot and engagement with the unique covenantal requirements of being a Jewish person in the world, the continuation of a creative process. You are creating yourself and you're creating the world with God uh, through the Torah. And the other group, which would include, say, Buber, Levinas, and to an extent, Sachs, are looking at relationship with other, what we might call Ben Adam Lachavero rather than Ben Adam Lamakom. They're looking at the uh, horizontal relationship with other not so much as a creative process, but as a core of creative purpose. And for this, I have, uh, I have just done a, a quick uh, diagram uh, to indicate that. Um, this is the kind of thing that I wanted to uh, indicate, that these are the, these are the two twin uh, themes that emerge from 20th century philosophy that are dealt with in a, in a variety of ways. And I know that this discussion is not really comprehensive. It can't go into great detail, but really I'm just dealing with the, the outlines here of what people might be, uh, what, what, what might help people to order their understanding of, of, of the way that Jewish philosophy in the 20th century has unfolded. It is still going. We still have this uh, inherent, need to try and reconcile uh, these two, in a sense, grounded facts of Jewish existence. Uh, on the one hand, a relationship uh, with God, because if the Jewish people are concerned with one thing, they are concerned with the idea of God uh, in the world, and what Jewish thought and Jewish existence in the world has to contribute to relationship with other. And these two towering events, the establishment of the State of Israel 
and the and the Shoah have never been properly reconciled and are emergent in the world as a calling on the Jewish people to reconcile them. And I think going forward, we will see uh, that at some point, uh, the Jewish people need to realize that, uh, just as the world needs to realize that it has a responsibility towards the Jewish people, that the Jewish people have a responsibility towards the world, not just to their own self-protection and survival, which as Bakhan might have argued, is the one commandment to come out of the Holocaust, to survive, which unquestionably is a paradigm of the, of the, of the continued uh, existence and protection of the state of Israel. But beyond that, the Jewish people have a collective responsibility towards the world to bring the world to a greater understanding of the relationship of other so that uh, the atrocities of the 20th century uh, will never be repeated. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.